0: that the feet of Him who brings good news is a beautiful thing. Maranatha, my friends, I greet you today in the name of God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The churches in the regions of Macedonia and Achaia and Asia and Lyconia and Galatia send their greetings to you as well. It seems odd, or at least difficult to believe, that it has been almost three entire years since I have been here to greet you here in Jerusalem. It is good to see the brethren again. It is good to connect again with some of my old friends. Of course, it's good to see Peter and James, the Lord's brother, John. Three years ago, it was Barnabas and I, we came here to meet with the apostles and the elders concerning the issue of circumcision and the Gentiles. And you may remember at that time that I related to you all of the wonderful things that the Lord had done through us among the Gentiles and how God had opened the door of faith to Gentiles. Friends, that was just the beginning. Our God continues to call out for Himself a people from among the Gentiles who will bear His name and bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance and with righteousness. I didn't intend to be here today. If I had had my way, I would never have stopped here in Jerusalem. I was on my way to Antioch and I kept a vow. And the, the vow is the reason that I'm here And instead of Antioch today. Uh, I took a Nazarite vow when I was in Corinth, and when I reached Centuria, Centuria, the time of my vow had come to an end, and so I had my hair cut, and I have come here to Jerusalem in time to be here for Pentecost in order that I might present my hair at the temple and thus fulfill my vow. And it has been a good opportunity for me to greet the church while I'm here before I head off to Antioch. You'll notice on close inspection that there is a bald spot here on the side of my head, I related to you last time how Barnabas and I suffered and were badly treated at at Lystra. On our first journey, it was at Lystra that I was stoned and drug outside the city and, and left for dead. And that whole incident happened so fast, I don't remember if it was the first stone or the second stone, but it was a sharp one and it hit me right here and took a big chunk of skin out of the side of my head. And the hair just has never grown back there. Now, I observe that we have a couple of brethren here this morning who look like they've endured a stoning, or two, rather severe ones possibly. But in all seriousness, friends, I count it a joy to be able to suffer thus for the Lord's sake, and as I wrote to the Galatian believers, I bear on my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what I've come here this morning to do is to report to you how God has continued to work amongst the Gentiles in these last Two years that Silas and I have been traveling. And I must begin on a rather somber note or a serious note. You'll notice this morning that, that Barnabas is not with me. There is a reason for that. About two years ago, I suggested to Barnabas that we go back and greet all of the churches that we had preached the Word in, in all of the cities in which we had preached the Word on our first trip. And Barnabas and I had a bit of a disagreement as to whom we should take along with us. Um, Barnabas wanted to take John Mark. I didn't think taking John Mark was all that good of an idea. And without going into too much detail, folks, I, just to say that neither Barnabas nor myself are particularly proud of how that whole thing cashed out. Uh, Relationships have been reconciled. The issues have been dealt with. And I praise God for Barnabas and for his ministry and for John Mark and his ministry. And of course, John Mark's mother Mary is here with us this morning. And she has reported how Barnabas has, flu- how John Mark has flourished under the ministry of Barnabas. And how he has just blossomed and Barnabas has discipled him. And and from what I hear from Mary, John Mark has gone on to work with Peter, rather closely with Peter, and has authored a book of all of the words and the sayings and the deeds of our Lord Jesus. I'm looking forward to reading that. So I chose, rather than John Mark and rather than Barnabas, I chose Silas, whom you know because he was here in Jerusalem, and, and of course after our, our council together with the elders and the apostles, I took Silas back to Antioch with me with the letter that James wrote. So Silas was a natural person to bring along on the, on the second journey, and I took Silas and we left. We traveled westward through the Cilician gates and we went back and we visited all of the churches in the, the region of Galatia where we had preached the word, Barnabas and I had preached the word. Silas and I traveled and we stopped in, in Derby and in Lystra and in Iconium and then in Antioch and we delivered the letter from James regarding circumcision and Gentiles and what is necessary for salvation and the brethren in those regions rejoiced. And, of course, I found that the letter that I had written to the Galatian churches before I left to come to Jerusalem for that meeting with the apostles and the elders, that letter that I had written had been well received and corrections were being made in the in the churches there in the Galatian regions. And, friends, the gospel has been once again firmly established amongst the Gentiles. But I would ask you to continue to pray for your brethren in the Galatian churches. The Judaizers who wish to impose the requirement of circumcision upon Gentile believers are still turning up the heat of persecuting the brethren in the Galatian churches. While we were in Galatia, I ran across a family that I had met, that Barnabas and I had met on our first journey. Um, A a young mother, her name was Eunice and her mother's name was Lois. Eunice had been married to a Gentile non-believer who never did come to faith, never did come to saving faith, but Eunice had become a believer. Lois, her mother, had become a believer. And Eunice was recently widowed, and she was left to care for her only son, son, a young man named Timothy. Now, I may have mentioned Timothy to you after my first journey. This was a young man with incredible potential. And I could see that in Timothy. And Silas and I determined after visiting the churches in Galatia that we would continue westward and and preach in other regions of, of our world where the gospel had not yet been preached. We needed somebody to bring along with us, somebody to help out in that valuable work of service that John Mark had fulfilled for Barnabas and I in the early part of our first journey. So Timothy, being less than 20 years old, I asked his mother and he consented to come along. And so Silas and I took Timothy and made him part of our ministry. And Timothy is one of these young men, and he's here with us today. Timothy is one of these young men who has incredible potential. There's I can honestly say I have nobody who is of like mind with me in the faith as Timothy is. He's the type of man who would genuinely be concerned for your interests instead of his own. He looks out genuinely for the interests of others. And Barnabas had set such a great example of, of encouragement and discipling young John Mark that I figured it was a good idea for me to follow that good example and to bring Timothy along and sort of raise him up in the faith as a father figure to him and disciple him in order that after I pass from the scene, Timothy might take over the work that I have started. And so Timothy came along with us. We left the Galatian region and we continued to travel westward. And I set my sights on going into the region of Asia, and I wanted to go to the capital city of Ephesus, and I wanted to preach the word in Asia, but the Spirit of Jesus prohibited me from doing so. And it's difficult for me to explain to you how all of that happened and how all of that cashed out, but friends, I will tell you it was very frustrating. We turned around and wanted to go northwest into Bithynia, but the Spirit of God would not permit me to preach there either. And so we just continued westward doing what we could and we finally, by the hand of God and the providence of God, we landed in Troas on the Aegean Sea, a seaport town. Now I say by the hand of God and by the providence of God because it was in Troas that I met a a fine young man, a doctor by the name of Luke, my beloved physician. I was having some physical maladies at the time. I wanted Luke along with me and he became a believer through our witness and through our testimony A brilliant young man with a brilliant mind. He was a a native of Philippi and had attended school there in the medical university that was in the city of Philippi. And so there we were at Troas, permitted to go neither north into Bithynia nor south into Asia, wondering what the Lord would have us to do. Now Luke is is such a wonder. He's not with us here this morning. I have left him in Philippi. But one of these days I would love to bring Dr. Luke back to Jerusalem so you would have the chance to meet him. Then in the night... I had a dream, and it was a dream of a man from Macedonia who was calling out to us, please, come help us. And as soon as that dream was over, I awoke, and I stayed up all night. I couldn't get back to sleep. The next morning when Timothy and Silas and Dr. Luke woke up, I related to them the dream that I had, and we discerned that that was the Lord who wanted us to preach in Macedonia. And so immediately we booked passage on a ship to sail for Macedonia to Neapolis. It took two days. We sailed past Samothrace and stayed there overnight. And on the next day, we arrived at Neapolis. And Dr. Luke came with us. We left Neapolis and we walked along the Ignatian Way into the city of Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia. Now, I mentioned earlier how the Lord is calling out a people from among the Gentiles who will bear his name and be his own special people zealous for good works. I want to share with you this morning at least three of the people from the city of Philippi who sort of stand out in all of my time there in Philippi. You would love the Philippian church. They are a generous, loving, kind, gracious group of believers. And even though I was only with them for a short time, my heart was knit to that congregation and they became dear to my heart as I'm sure they would become dear to your heart as well if you had the chance to meet your brothers and sisters who reside at Philippi. The first person we met was a woman by the name of Lydia. There was no synagogue in Philippi, so we went out to the riverside where we supposed there would be a place of prayer, Timothy, Silas, Luke, and myself, and we were rather surprised to see that there were only women who were meeting at the riverside for prayer on that Sabbath morning. And so we joined them and we sat down and we began to, to discuss with them things concerning the faith and the Old Testament prophets. And and I taught them about Jesus the Christ from the law and from the prophets. And the Lord did a marvelous thing there at that riverside. He opened the heart of Lydia to respond to the things that I said. And she became a believer. She and most of the people who were there at the riverside with her that morning, that morning. So we taught her about baptism. And that day before we left, we baptized all of those new believers. And we went back into town, and Lydia petitioned us to stay with her in her house. She was a wealthy woman, a seller of fabric, of purple fabrics. And she had a large home that Silas and Timothy and Luke and myself could stay in without any kind of discomfort at all. In fact, the early church began to meet there in her home. And she opened it up for the church and showed hospitality to all of the believers. And they would come there, and and her home became sort of the headquarters out of which we ran our ministry in Philippi during those few short weeks that we were there. The second person that the Lord called out in Philippi that kind of comes to mind, she was not a wealthy woman. She was not even a free woman. She was a slave girl. And she was poor and and she was possessed by a spirit of divination and owned by her masters and they were exploiting her. And she would tell the future and prophesy these different things and she was demon possessed and her masters were making much profit off of her. This girl began to follow us down to the riverside every day as we went down there for prayer to meet with this young church. Now you can imagine how inconvenient and frustrating that would be to have a demon-possessed person follow you to church every Sunday morning. little awkward, isn't it? But that's what she was doing. On top of that, she was crying out at the top of her lungs. Behold, these men proclaim the way of salvation as servants of the Most High God. She did this for many days. I finally got so annoyed, so frustrated with this whole mess that I turned around and I said to the demon, in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And it did that very instant. And she was set free. She was delivered. The Lord worked a miracle through me there in Philippi. And she was set free and delivered from the bondage of that demon. She didn't go back to her fortune-telling ways. But friends, once her... Once our owners saw what had happened and that their hope of profit was gone, they grabbed Silas and me. Timothy and Luke escaped, thankfully. They grabbed Silas and myself and drug us down into the center of Philippi and brought charges against us. Now, I thought that Philippi, being a Roman colony, that I would have had a hope for a shot of justice in Philippi. And they said that these men are preaching customs against of which it is unlawful for us as Romans to observe. The men who brought that accusation against us knew it was a false accusation. We knew it was a false accusation. But before we had a chance to say anything, the magistrates in the city of Philippi took Silas and I, and they stripped us of our clothing naked in front of the crowd, and they beat us with many blows. Friends, there was a point in that that I wondered if the beating was ever going to stop. And it finally did. And we breathed a sigh of relief. But then they took us and they put us in stocks and they threw us into the inner prison. Now, I'll be honest with you, I don't know what hurt more, those uncomfortable stocks on that stone floor or the beatings that they had given to us. I'm tempted to say the stocks hurt worse because at least I knew the beatings would come to an end at some point before they killed us. I tell you that not so that I can boast in my sufferings or so that you can feel sorry for me. Not at all. I tell you that because all of that's necessary to understand the sort of the context of the third person that we had opportunity to share the gospel with in Philippi. And that was the jailer of the prison that they put us into. Silas and I were only in prison for a couple hours. And it was about the middle of the night that we were praising God and singing praises to Him and rejoicing in the fact that we had been considered worthy to suffer shame for His namesake. And while we were praising God, there came an earthquake and the ground began to move and all of the candles inside the prison began to shake and shelves fell down and it was such a great earthquake. We thought that the whole place was going to come in down around our, our ears and right on top of us. It finally stopped and we realized that our shackles had fallen off, the doors had been opened, all of the locks undone, none of the prisoners escaped. Everybody was so shell-shocked after what had happened, seeing what had happened, that they just kind of stood there. You can imagine what you would feel like in such a situation. They didn't have much time to escape, the jailer. It woke him up and he came rushing out of his house into the outer courtyard. He saw that the doors of the prison had been opened and that, the, uh, that all of the locks had been undone and he thought we had taken the opportunity to escape. He grabbed his sword and he was about ready to fall on, himself, on it himself. And friends, I'll be honest with you, for a split second I wondered what I should do, but I saved his life and I said, don't, don't, we're all in here, we're all present and accounted for. And he grabbed a light and he rushed down into the middle of that prison. And I thought he was coming in there to kill all these prisoners before any of them escaped. But he dropped down before Silas and I. And he said, what must I do to be saved? Now, friends, that's a ministry opportunity like you don't get every day on the street, isn't it? I shared with him the same thing that I have shared in city after city after city. That you and I are saved by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I told him, if you and your whole household will believe on the Lord for salvation, then you will be saved. He secured the rest of the prisoners, and he brought Silas and I out and into his house. And Silas and I began to teach the word to him until he and his whole household believed in the Lord for salvation. And we baptized him immediately. He washed our wounds. He gave us food, and we rejoiced together with him. Before the night was up so that he wouldn't get in trouble, he put us back into the prison cell And the authorities sent word early the next morning to release us. And Silas and I said, look, you've beaten us publicly without trial. You've imprisoned us without cause. And we're Roman citizens. Boy, you should have seen the shock on their face when they found out we were Roman citizens. So Silas and I said, you need to come down here and apologize to us publicly and release us yourselves. And so They did, and when they got there, they realized the error that they had made in inflicting punishment like that on a Roman citizen when, as Roman citizens, I'm exempt from that kind of punishment. And all they could do was beg of us to leave the city. And so we did. We left Dr. Luke and Philippi to attend to that early church, and we traveled on to the next city, which was Thessalonica. Thessalonica did have a synagogue of the Jews and so as was my custom I went into the synagogue and began to reason with the Jews there and argue and and sort of debate and have this interaction with them in order to explain to them that the Christ according to the law and to the prophets the Christ had to suffer and then rise again and that Jesus the Christ had suffered and risen again therefore Jesus was the Messiah. the jews some of them believed but most of the people who believed in thessalonica were god-fearing gentiles and and uh, proselytes and there were just a few jews well my time in the synagogue only lasted for about 3 weeks and the jews became jealous we began to stay at the home of a man named jason who had become a believer and silas and and uh, timothy and i were staying at his house in thessalonica and One day, the Jews, having become jealous, they went into the marketplace and they hired these, um, well, the kindest thing I could say about them, they'd be thugs for hire, wicked men, really, whose job it is to stir up the crowds. And the Jews hired these wicked men to stir up the crowds against us and they attacked the home of Jason where we were staying. We weren't there, I wasn't there. They were looking for me. See, when I was in Thessalonica, I had to work almost night and day with my own hands in order to provide for my needs lest I become a burden to that brand new church of believers. And so I was down in the marketplace and I wasn't home. And I came home later that evening and saw that the house had been attacked. I found out about all of this afterwards. But they had brought Jason down before the authorities in Thessalonica and had said that these men who are turning the world upside down have come here to Thessalonica to do the same thing. They were referring to me and to Timothy and and Silas. They've come here to Thessalonica to do the same thing, and Jason is harboring them, and they're preaching another king, Jesus. Now that's a serious crime if it's true, and we knew that our lives could be on the line if we were convicted of preaching a rival king to Caesar, Well, fortunately the Lord delivered Jason from any kind of a beating and the authorities in Thessalonica were much more balanced mentally than the authorities in Philippi and they simply took a a pledge from Jason. They required some money from him and that money, of course, was put up and Jason was let go and the conditions of the pledge was that I had to leave Thessalonica or Jason would be beaten and his money would be taken. So the brethren, after we got back to Jason's home that night, by night they rushed us off to Berea. Now Berea is a little backwater town out away from Thessalonica, kind of rural, just slow down and just kind of your average backwoods type of environment. When we showed up in Berea, we went into the synagogue as is my custom to to present the gospel, the messiah to the Jews there and we found out that the, believer, the Jews in Berea were much more noble-minded, fair-minded than the Jews in even in Thessalonica. The Berean Jews began to search the Scriptures daily to see if what I was telling them about their Messiah was true. And many of them believed. Do you know why many of them believed? Many of them believed because they were searching the Scriptures to see if what I was telling them was true. And I wish that everybody that you and I had the opportunity to preach or to teach to would search the Scriptures to see if what we say is true. Because if what we say is true, then we don't mind a little examination, do we? Many of them believed. Everything was going well there, no opposition. But listen, when the Jews from Thessalonica found out that the, I was making disciples in Berea, they came all the way from Thessalonica into Berea, and they did the same thing. They stirred up the crowds and rushed us out of Berea. Now, just like I had left Luke at Philippi to attend to the church there, I left Timothy and Silas in Berea, and I went away, and the, the brethren, for my own safety, ushered me out of the city and took me to Athens. Now, Athens. Friends, if you have never been to Athens, I, to be honest with you, I don't even know how to describe to you the idolatry in the city of Athens. As Jews, you and I know that the Gentiles are by nature idolaters. They are polytheists. They worship not just other gods, but every other god. I showed up in Athens, and I'll be honest with you, I have not seen anything like that in all of my travels. And I have been in cities filled with Gentiles where they worship Hermes and and Aphrodite and Diana and all of these idols. But I've never seen anything like what I saw in Athens. And when I arrived in Athens, I I knew the ministry in Athens would be tough. And so I sent back with the brethren for Timothy and Silas and told them to have Timothy and Silas join me as quickly as possible. And I didn't intend to do any ministry in Athens right away. I I wanted to sort of take a break for a bit, wait for my team to regather, and then we would go into ministry. But friends, I saw idolatry there that vexed my spirit to the point where I had to say something. Even just walking into the the marketplace, well, to back up a little bit, even walking up to the city, you could be 30 miles away, and you would see on top of the Acropolis this great big statue of Athena with her sword raised high in the air, glimmering for everybody to see for miles around. They worshipped Athena. And then you come into the city, and you walk down into the marketplace, into the Agora. And even in order to get into the marketplace, you have to walk through a forest of idols. Big, tall columns with images of Hermes on top of the columns, and you feel like you're walking under this idolatry. And then you get into Athens, and you find yourself bumping into things all the time, and they are idols. Every direction you turn is a shrine, an image, an idol, an icon, a worshiper, an altar, people bowing down all over the place. Idolatry, like it is difficult for us to even imagine. I became so stirred up over the fact that glory was being given to animals and images and icons and statues that I started to go immediately without Silas and Timothy, started to go immediately into the synagogue to reason with the Jews and down into the marketplace. And in the marketplace, I found an interesting combination of people, Epicureans and Stoics, philosophers. Athens is the intellectual capital of our world. But friends, you have never seen a place of more mental darkness than the city of Athens. The Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers, they mingle around in the marketplace there in Athens, and they live for this reason, to say or hear something new. That's what they live for. They can spend hours debating how many angels can balance on the head of a pin. That's all they do. They talk about new things, new ideas, new thoughts, and they they regurgitate all of this stuff, and they stand around and they debate it back and forth. I went down into the marketplace, and I got my little corner in the marketplace, and I started to teach. And they were willing to listen. Because listen, as, as long as they're willing to hear something new, I'm willing to tell them something new. Uh, when I got to the part about Jesus and the resurrection, that's when they started mocking me. And they gave me a nickname, Seed Picker Paul. And that's what they called me in Athens, Seed Picker Paul. One of the Stoic philosophers came up and he said, would you like to present your teaching at the Areopagus? I didn't have much time to prepare, but I said, Sure. Now here's an opportunity to present a biblical perspective of the world to the philosophical elite of our time. So I went to the Areopagus. My tactic with them had to be different than my tactic in a synagogue, and so I began with things that you and I take for granted, like the fact that God is creator and sustainer and judge of everything. I had to sort of lay that foundation for them before I could get to the point of presenting Jesus as the Christ. And and they were willing to give me a listen. They listened to all of my entire sermon. And I got to the very end to the part about the resurrection. And when I mentioned the resurrection, that's when they began to sneer. They began to sneer and mock and call me all kinds of names. And you see, they have no place in their thinking at all for any kind of a bodily resurrection. In Athens, there was only a couple people who became believers, just a couple. I don't think I'll go back to Athens. That, that is a very mentally, spiritually dark city, hard territory for the gospel in Athens. Uh, Silas and Timothy eventually returned to Athens. Timothy brought word that the I still could not return to Thessalonica as much as I wanted to go back to check on those new believers. And I'll tell you why I wanted to go back to Thessalonica. I figured if the if the Jews who had opposed us had come from Thessalonica all the way to Berea just to cause us problems, what must the believers in their own backyard be going through? And I was concerned for this little church. I had only spent a couple months with them and I wanted to establish them in the faith. Timothy returned and, and he expressed how the, the pledge was still in place. I couldn't go back. I wanted to go back, but Satan was hindering us. So I sent Timothy from Athens all the way up to Thessalonica to check on the church there. I sent Silas to Philippi, and we agreed to meet in Corinth. Now Corinth, traveling from Athens to Corinth is traveling from darkness to darkness. But it's two different kinds of darkness. The darkness in Athens is a mental, spiritual darkness. Because the people in Athens try and know God and know truths about life apart from revelation. They think the answer rests in human wisdom. In Corinth, it's moral darkness. Now, as Jews, we know that the Gentiles, they are sinners. They are morally reprobate. We ourselves also were once just like them. But friends, in Corinth is every kind of immorality, every kind of sensuality, Every unlawful, impure, disgusting thing you can possibly imagine is practiced in Corinth. And not just practice, friends, but those people glory in their immorality. They are proud of their immorality. I was walking into Corinth alone. I didn't have Silas. I didn't have Timothy. And I didn't nobody in the city of Corinth. And I was asking myself, walking into that city, how will these people respond to a message that demands of them radical, moral purity. How will they respond to this? How will they respond to a message that declares that all of their choices, all of their lifestyles, all of their deeds of darkness, their wickedness, their immorality is condemned by God and they will face certain judgment for it? How would they respond to that? I'll be honest with you, friends. I walked into Corinth in fear and trembling. Very serious. Somber. If I had walked into Corinth and they had killed me at the first opportunity and drug my body outside the city and left me for dead, had they decided to do that, Timothy and Silas would have never known what happened to me. I was all alone. I didn't know anybody there. It was fearful. But the Lord has a way of encouraging us, doesn't he? I was only there for a couple of days and I met this couple. Aquila is his name. Priscilla is his wife's name. They were leather workers, tent makers like myself, and, and, and that's actually how I met them because we shared a We share that common trade. And they were believers before I ever got to Corinth, and they were tent makers there, and we ran into each other, and immediately there was this kindred spirit, a a vibrant, growing couple of believers. They had been forced out of Rome. They used to live in Rome, but Claudius had kicked all the Jews out of Rome, as you know, and they had been forced to leave, so they landed in Corinth. And, And then on top of meeting Priscilla and Aquila, which I started to stay with them, they gave me, Housing and, and provided for some of my means, and I worked with my hands. And during the week, I was working in the marketplace, making tents and doing leather work to provide for my needs. On the weekends, I was in the synagogue with the Jews, reasoning and debating with them, reasoning from the scriptures with them. And after a couple of weeks, Silas and Timothy showed up. Timothy brought phenomenal news to the church in Thessalonica. He said they were growing in their faith and in their love and in their hope and that they had become an example to all of the churches in all of the regions of Macedonia and Achaia of the faith. And that the Word of God was sounding forth from that little church all over the region. People were coming to faith. Everybody was talking about the Thessalonican church. And friends, that does my heart so good to hear that my spiritual children walk in truth. And so I wrote them a letter. In fact, during my time in Corinth, I wrote them two letters. And I had to correct a few misunderstandings that they had about the day of the Lord, but those letters were well received and those corrections were made. Silas brought back good news from Philippi. They also brought an offering from the churches in Macedonia. And because of that offering, I was able to stop working with my hands during the week and I was able to give my attention full time to the word. And so I was in the synagogue every week. And the Lord brought fruit from that. Because there's something that happened in Corinth that I did not see happen in any church that I have been, any city that I have been in, in any synagogue that I have been in. The leader of the synagogue became a believer. And not just him, but his whole household became a believer. Once the Jews lost their leader to to the faith, they began to blaspheme. And they wanted to drive us out of there. So we had to leave the synagogue. We started meeting at the house of... Titus Justus who lived right next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, he started meeting there with us and I was teaching and preaching there in the house next door to the synagogue and the animosity and the hostility of those Jews became more and more intense as time went on. And they started blaspheming and blaspheming and friends, I'll be honest with you about something and all of us are subject to this. I started to get a little fearful. A little fearful that history might repeat itself. I had been beaten in Philippi, imprisoned in Philippi, almost beaten in Thessalonica, almost beaten in Berea, and mocked at in Athens. I was afraid the Jews were going to do this to me in Corinth as well. Now, if I had my way, I would have been here a year ago. But early on in my stay there, the Lord appeared to me in the vision by night. And he said, Paul, I'm with you. And no man will attack you in order to harm you. Go on speaking and go on teaching just like you have been doing. Because there are many people left in this city yet that are mine. So I set up shop in Corinth and I stayed there many days. I was in Corinth a total of 18 months. <laughs> During that time, Gaius and Stephanus and Crispus and others whom I baptized became believers I baptized them after they became believers and the church continued to grow in Corinth and the hostility got greater and greater. But the Lord did something great in Corinth. The Jews at one point, they, they brought accusations against... Myself and, and my message, and saying that what I was teaching was unlawful by Jewish law, and, and they brought me down into the before the judgment seat to Gallio there, and, and Gallio heard the case, and the Jews said, "He's teaching things that are unlawful for us to worship God in a way that it's not lawful for us as Jews to worship." Now the implications of this is that if, if we were to lose this case, it would be the same as declaring our faith illegal. But Gallio, before I even had a chance to plead my case in the court, Gallio kicked it out of court, thus establishing that we are legitimately the expression of a Jewish faith. And so because of that incident, incident, our gospel enjoys freedom, religious freedom, and the protection of the Roman government. In response to that and so many more instances that I could give you of the Lord's deliverance and His blessing and and delivering me from danger and, and the attacks of people, I took the Nazarite vow. I let my hair grow and when springtime came this last spring and the shipping lanes opened up again, I determined it was time for me to finally leave Corinth. And I have made haste in order to get here, in order to keep my vow and to present my hair at the temple as according to the Nazarite vow. We stopped for a brief stay in Ephesus. Priscilla and Aquila came with me from Corinth. They traveled as far as Ephesus, and we had just a little layover there while we were waiting for the next ship to take us to Caesarea. And so we went into the synagogue on the Sabbath, and I reasoned with the Jews there. And they were far more receptive than the Jews had been in almost any city I've ever been in. They wanted me to stay longer, but I couldn't. I had my hair. I had a vow to keep. Priscilla and Aquila would be here today had not the church in Ephesus, or had not the Jews in Ephesus responded so positively. So I left Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus and I've come back here now and have fulfilled my vow. Now friends, that's just a short report of all that God has done amongst the Gentiles in calling out a people who will bear his name. I could tell you thousands of lives have been changed, how prostitutes, adulterers, fornicators, homosexuals, effeminate thieves, liars, and idolaters, have all come to faith in Christ and had their lives radically changed. I could express to you all of the thousands of people whom I have come into contact with, whose lives have been altered by the gospel, but I only have time to share with you a few. Friends, I would ask you to pray for the Galatian churches. Pray that they would stand strong against the false doctrine of the Judaizers. Pray for Dr. Luke in Philippi as he continues to disciple and to raise up young men for leadership there and to to shepherd that church. Pray for the church in Thessalonica as they go through the furnace of affliction and suffer many things at the hands of their Jewish countrymen, just as you do here in Jerusalem, at the hands of the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Pray for them. Pray that they will stand strong. And pray for the church in Corinth. I'll be honest with you. I don't know how they're going to fare in my absence. I don't know how things are going to turn out with them they have been so influenced by their immoral, prideful, idolatrous culture that my fear is that that will creep into the church in no time at all and bring everything just to a screeching halt. That's my fear. So pray for the Corinthian believers, that they would be able to stand strong against the influence of the world and the immoral culture in which they live. Friends, I've learned a few different things in these last two years, or at least been reminded of a couple of different things, and let me share them with you quickly. The first thing that I have been reminded of in these last couple years is that God's ways are not our ways. It was not my intention to go to Macedonia. It was not my intention when I started to go any farther than the Galatian churches. I simply suggested to Barnabas, let's go visit the churches where we first preached the word of the Lord. Now, the Lord had different plans entirely. We got into the Galatian churches, and... Off we went westward, and I wanted to go into Bethany, and I wanted to go into Asia, but the, my ways are not the Lord's ways, and He guided our steps right down to Troas. And because of how the Lord providentially, sovereignly works out His plan, we were in Macedonia and Achaia, and so people became believers in Thessalonica and Corinth and Athens and Berea, Philippi, Centria, and now Ephesus. Those were His ways, not my ways. Second thing I've been reminded of is that you and I can trust the Lord to work out his plan in even the worst of circumstances. Listen, friends, I didn't like being prohibited from preaching in Asia and Bithynia. didn't like that at all. But God was working out a plan. Do you think I enjoyed being beaten in Philippi? I didn't enjoy that. But because of that, the Lord used that to bring the feet of the gospel to the jailer. I didn't enjoy all of the opposition and attack that was present at Corinth. But the Lord used that to establish a church there. We can trust the Lord in the most difficult and painful circumstances to work out his perfect will. And I have learned that if it is God's place for you, it is the best place for you, even if it's in a prison, even if it's being beaten, even if it's suffering opposition and and pain or torture or whatever it may be. If it's God's place for you, it's the best place for you. And the third thing I have been reminded of, friends, is that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. i told you about a slave. I've told you about free people. I've told you about rich people, and I've expressed to you about poor people, Jew, Gentile, male, female. God is calling out from amongst the nations a people for his own special possession who will bear his name. And to everyone who believes the gospel, is the power of God unto salvation. The Lord continues to deliver his people from sin, from Satan, and from self. He does so through his word, which is preached. And he continues to bless the preaching of his word and to call out his people to himself in order that he might possess them. That's the glorious liberty of the sons of God. Some of you have asked, what's next for me? Where from here? I won't be able to stay around long after the service today because I'm heading off to Antioch to greet the brethren in the church there. So I'm, I'm leaving immediately after the service. From there, well, they really don't need me in Antioch. You see, they've got Lucius and Menaean and Simeon there and uh, plenty of leadership. I'm not needed there. That's home for me, at least as close to home as an itinerant minister like me has. So I'll be moving on from Antioch someplace. I would like to visit Rome someday. I don't know if the Lord will ever direct my steps to Rome, but at least that's on the agenda. I have met lots of Christians in my travels that are from the church in Rome, and there's some issues that need to be addressed with their understanding of certain elements of the gospel, and I would like to go there and to visit with them and to address those issues, but if the Lord doesn't direct my steps that way, then I'm thinking about writing a letter to the church at Rome, just to sort of hammer out those issues and express those things to them, Hopefully, Lord willing, he'll guide my steps to Rome. I'd like to go back to Ephesus and see Priscilla and Aquila again. I would like to go back to Philippi sometime and cross paths with Dr. Luke. I guess the only thing I know for certain about what's next is another trip. I don't travel as fast as I used to. I'm 50 years old now. I know I look young for as old as I am. I don't travel as well as I used to, but friends, as long as the Lord gives me breath, I will gladly spend and be spent for the sake of his gospel and for the sake of his elect. I thank you for your time. thank you for your patience. And I thank you for your prayers. Let's pray together. Our Father, we're reminded again that this thing called the gospel and this thing called the church is so much bigger than us. It spans time and will span time. It spans cultures and international boundaries. We thank you that you are calling out a people unto yourself for your own special possession. We thank you for the grace which is shown to us and to all your people in Christ Jesus, a grace that was granted to us in Christ from all of eternity. We pray for the believers in these other churches in Galatia that they would stand strong against false doctrine, and that you would keep this church here standing strong against false doctrine, contending earnestly for the faith which has been once for all delivered to the saints. We pray for the believers who are in Thessalonica suffering affliction and ask that you would encourage them and give them grace. And we pray that you would do the same thing in this church amongst us, that you would strengthen us and give us the grace to stand strong for the gospel, that the word of the Lord may go forth from us, and continue to multiply and abound and increase more and more. We pray for the church in Philippi that you would raise up men and women to leadership positions and aid that shepherd, and that you would do the same thing amongst us. Raise up from amongst our numbers men and women who are able to take positions of leadership, to shepherd the church, to teach, to preach, to be sent out, and to serve you with fervor. And we pray for the church in Corinth that you would steal the hearts and the minds and the spines of those Christians to stand strong against an ungodly culture, to not be pressed into the mold of the world, and that you would give us as a body of believers here that same grace, to not be pressed into the mold of the world, but to be transformed into the image of Christ. Thank you for your grace which is able to make all of this possible, and we commit ourselves and the ministry of the word to you today in the name of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.